Hello and welcome back. This is Colin Keeley here. And I'm Brent Sanders. We are two guys buying and building wonderful internet companies. And raising money while doing it. Because today I think we want to talk through building up an investor base and how we've been putting effort into that in the last year or so. And what goes into it? Because I think there's coming from our background in the venture space, like I've had a fair amount of exposure to it. I don't know, like you raised money for your startup, right? I raised a little bit, had a lot of discussions. And then, so we had these studio companies and I helped run those processes. So that is like a much easier game, I guess I'd say. Angels are hard to find. VCs are easy to find. Like it's their job to be easy to find. Um, so it's the whole process is trying to build up FOMO basically. So you try to run a really tight process within a couple of weeks and try to build up that feeding frenzy. This like networking to... LPs in the private equity world or like family offices has been very different. Like they're, they seem almost like they are intentionally difficult to find. Which kind of makes sense. It's like they're, my sense for the folks that we have spoken with in the family office world is they don't really want to be anyone's first check. They want to be, right. They, they want to follow on and they want to, and, and uh, I'm speaking in massive general generalities. So this is not really true of everybody, but my disposition going into those conversations is you need to have shown some sort of, or somebody I know some sort of track record, and then we, we can be talking because it, it's a, just that a different profile. And I think the thing we were warned with family offices is that be aware of the long no, the, yeah, we're interested, love to keep talking. And then three months, four months later, it's, yeah, no, we're a pass on this. Yeah. It's very hard to pin people down unless you give them like kind of artificial deadlines of things, but yeah, just finding them. It's like, we both had connections into the industry. And then it's every time you have a call, it's like, well, who else should I be talking to? And from there, maybe you have three introductions and it's just like slowly winding your way through this like opaque world that has been quite an experience. One interesting part of this sort of investor community that that we, I don't know, you discovered, this is more so from your connections at Booth of getting into the search fund or what we're finding are like search fund tangential investors, which are, I don't know, describe like a traditional search fund. How would you phrase it? So there's different versions. A traditional search fund is often a, like a top MBA student from Booth or Harvard or Stanford or Wharton or whatever, something like that. They go to all these entrepreneurship through acquisition or search fund funds and say, hey, I'm going to buy a business. I'm looking at like this sector. Give me the starting money. So give me like, I don't know, 300,000 or something. And I'll search for a year and I'll cover my salary and expenses. And then on the back end, you're my like committed capital of 10 million or whatever they're trying to do. And then, so they spend a year searching and they're getting the salary that whole time. Then once they find a business, they have this like LP pipeline that just fills out the round. And the other way to do it is you do the search part yourself. And then you have these discussions like slowly. And then once you get a deal under LOI, you raise the money from different people. And that you could maybe get better terms because you weren't like paid salary to do it. And then, so a lot of these investors are like kind of fund of funds. Like they are specifically investing in this search fund model and they have a mandate to do that and they can't vary from it. And then there's other investors that are maybe have a looser mandate so they could do this independent sponsor where they could back uh, buying companies like traditional private equity, but where the GPs or us in this situation aren't going to be the CEO. And that's a distinction with the search fund versus independent sponsor. And there are set terms, which is the things that 
you know, as we've talked about not being weird or adopting like a structure to these deals, like that there's a prescriptive set of terms that you can definitely deviate from, but it's, if you want to go to those investors, it seems like it's a good way to go. I think it's almost, I think of it as like its own vehicle. It's a way to structure a deal that's an acquisition that, you know, as you said, you, you can be the CEO, you cannot, usually you are. And, but yeah, what are the, the deal terms? If I remember correctly, it's three tranches of, you, know, you raise all the money and it, there's generally a preferred tier to the equity. Is there common and preferred? How, is, how does it work? Yeah, there's common and preferred. So the preferred is gen- generally like a six to eight uh, percent. And so that's always accruing. And then the carry traditional search fund terms is 30%. And that's broken up into three buckets. So you get 10% on closing, 10% vests over four years. I'm not sure what the standard is, something like that. And then the final 10% is based on performance. So mm-hmm. once you clear some hurdle, it's like over 30%, you earn that additional 10%. And so all that is really built on like, it, it's a time crunch. So as soon as you close the deal, you got to get out within you know three, four or five years because right. you have all this stuff that's building. So not a great fit if you're trying to hold something for long-term or trying to do anything that deviates, but investors love it because almost every deal is the same. And so it's just a yes or no. And there's nothing to negotiate. Like these are the terms. Yeah. Do you like this business? You know what the terms are going to be, which I, I like. And as we go back to, I wonder if there's something here to be learned and, and probably not for, as we talk, going back to like microacquire and how they go through the legal process and everything's a snowflake. Like every deal has to be negotiated. I mean, as we do more, I think we're finding, okay, there's a rhythm to it. There's, they are standardized, but still there are no set terms. Like we talk about like the safe note of the venture world. So it's interesting. I don't know. I wonder if that's something what we could learn from in the future is almost, and I guess larger funds, I wonder if like the constellations and the vistas of the world, but once they have fund one, those are the terms they stick and it just goes fund two, fund three, and, and they never have to think about it again. No. So the funds that perform really well, so Vista and those ones are a little weird. They get really big. So then they maybe keep lower terms, but it's on such a large assets, AUM, assets under management that mm. it really adds up. But the people that do this well, so if you did one deal, you knock it out of the park, you have a lot of power on the next deal. Mm. And then you can bump up the terms. You could take much higher percentages of, you could take a huge acquisition fee, like kind of upfronts. You could take way more carry. Um, but that, that's what the big VCs do. And they have the power to do. Because if Sequoia is taking 30%, Benchmark is taking 30% of the carry or whatever, it's still an amazing deal for LPs if you could get into the deals, right, into yeah. the funds. And then on the fundraising front, I feel like I, it's been interesting. We've really only been fundraising during COVID, like during and, and, and after it's like way more like normally. And again, I'm going back to more of a venture experience, which was, I don't want to speak for everybody, but my experience fundraising in venture was very alcohol fueled. <laughs> There's a lot of, a lot of whining and dining, a lot of dinners, a lot of bottles of wine. And it, in what I've seen of other folks, it's like, it can be taxing, especially if that's your style to, to be that sort of, let's get to know each other, get you comfortable with me, get comfortable with you. It's definitely been an advantage to be like, Hey, let's just hop on a 30 minute zoom. If it goes to 45 minutes, great. I guess, why don't we talk about like how we've historically set up investor conversations? Like one, you gotta have to, you, you have to have a deal, right? I think like, so you don't have to, it certainly helps a lot. Like it's hard to get these meetings and it's even harder if it's just, Hey, let's get to know each other. It's much easier if it's like, hey, I have this you know, awesome opportunity for you. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about it. 
And then you have something concrete to talk about, whether that deal is under LOI or not, at least you have something concrete to talk about and you're like bringing things to discuss. Yeah. So from there, like we automate everything at least as much as possible. So we can just shoot a link out, book through Calendly that hits a webhook to I use pipe dream. You kept saying, oh, it's, it's all hooked up with Zapier. And I'm like, Colin, it is not Zapier. I, I coded that. A- anybody out there that's doing workflow automation, check out pipe dream. That's a good plug. It's a really easy and free. You can write like little snippets of JavaScript. And then we, we link it up with like DocuSign in case we need an NDA. And one thing we didn't automate was access to, usually downstream with automating access to documents and stuff, because that can be a little, like, security-wise, I wasn't sure if that's a great thing to automate. Make it easy to book a meeting, get the docs, if, if you need an NDA for the, the conversation. Like that, I feel like was well-received. I, I think we had our one investor, that guy that I met at a country club, <laughs> sent me the, he was asking for the, what was it, the PPM? The PP, give me the, send me the PPM. It was all in caps. It was great. I don't think he ever booked a meeting because it might've been a little too technical for him, but at least within the investors, I think we, that are tech savvy and can take Zoom meetings. I've appreciated though. The the point of all this is I've appreciated doing this during COVID to be honest, because it's like, we've been able to historically just go through a lot more meetings, like 30 minutes. Here's the deal. Let's talk. Let's get to know one another and not be like, let's grab coffee. And you're on your sixth latte of the day and you feel like trash or your six beer or whatever it is yeah making these excuses let's grab a drink let's grab something or neither one of us has you know through all the fundraising we've done gotten on an airplane today right it's crazy yeah otherwise i think what you do is you fly to new york you fly to minneapolis and you like book as many meetings as you possibly can over a three-day and just back to back this is a very different world now there's this big question whether this was even possible two years ago and mm-hmm. now this is probably the only way forward. I still miss, I, I like the in-person stuff. I like getting I to too. hang out with people. So we should probably go to more of these conferences, go to more of these meetups where like family offices are, but this has what been very the, efficient. What was the one just in Orlando? What's, what is that called? SMB Bash. It's a new SMB. one. So the feedback, I, I asked a friend who went and LP, who's, he was like the, it was just a ton of younger guys, younger girls that were looking for capital and it was like he he said maybe low value for somebody in our disposition not to say that we're not we're young or old but just there's a lot of people trying to do the same thing scrape together investments on or commitments from folks and it's i love the idea i used to do that all the time with my agency is like new york for a day i just go drum up business schedule three or four meetings go to new york fly back at night and i would get enough work for the next two three quarters that that is characteristic of just getting face-to-face with people, which I do miss. And, and I recently starting to, it's funny, I've been able to, to branch out, meet some folks in the Cleveland investor community, which of course they're Midwestern, nice and awesome, really willing to bend their, their, I don't know, bend their ear a little bit more to somebody who is local. And I think there's yeah. something to that, but never have I ever thought Cleveland's a place to fundraise. Definitely not. It's, there are some different little pockets and people that are savvy and, and will invest in software deals. But so I've been super impressed and happy about that. But I moved here for raising a family, not for raising money. Yeah. So I have friends that have raised like these Midwestern venture capital funds and they just have a hell of a time. Like all the family offices are very risk adverse state, but it's like yeah. this tech thing. I don't know. I'm pretty skeptical of that. And we're like a bit of a hybrid where you're investing in cash flowing businesses and, and get that better. So I think we've generally had a much easier time than these people where it's like, 
raising a blind pool of capital to invest in these risky startups that are starting from nothing. At least we're starting yeah. from cash flows and established businesses. Yeah. Yeah. Blind pool is not, yeah, not what we're doing. Maybe we just need to get into the self-storage business. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Software for self-storage, I would be into though. And I actually have looked, seen some of the offerings in the space and it's pretty bad. Definitely space for someone to come in. It's just, you're absolutely right. The Midwestern family offices are probably risk averse. People trying to make make that that transition or make that change and, and get exposure to I think the recurring revenue is definitely something that's it's interesting. The, the meetings over Zoom have been interesting and, and I feel lucky for over the last like couple of years to be able to save my liver from uh, whining and dining. And then um, I'd say one of the interesting observations that I want to talk about is, and, and this is feedback that we receive mainly from the GP of our old fund, who is once you start these conversations and then maybe you have a deal and you want to shop that and like getting an answer or getting commitments. And it's been, you mentioned it before, but creating artificial deadlines, which has been an interesting. It seems like a generally accepted way to, to obviously to sell, but then to, to gather closings for financing. I don't know. Do we want to talk a little bit about how we create artificial deadlines? Yeah. I think it's a good idea. So our former GP was very good at this. He's very yes. good at the strategy of the whole thing. And it always feels a little slimy, but it's like, this is how you get you know, deals across the finish line. So in the VC world, it's always like, I'm fundraising for these two weeks. The last two, three months have been amazing up and to the right, which you can always game. You can always yeah. save up all your marketing to do that. And this is a playbook. And then you try to play the other ones against each other. There's only so much room in the round. Like, ah, I think I could maybe squeeze you in. And then people are, everyone ends up happy, I guess, is the way to do it. Because yeah. they're like, oh God, I got into the hot deal. Great. So it was something along the lines of saying, we're two weeks away from X artificial deadline. This is the the date that we're, we're only going to allow this amount from family offices. And we, we need to get a commitment by this time. And the other part of it was like always building a way to come back to them, even if they don't re- reply, being able to, yeah, we're, I'd really include you in this. And <laughs> I just, I'm not that good of a salesperson. I can't say I've, I've executed this well. And it's usually been over email where we're sending a note being like, hey, we're going to be oversubscribed and we're only going to take X amount of dollars from institutions. So we have to set this hard deadline. We'd really like to get you in, but we're not sure if we can make it happen. And it's all in service of, developing some sort of FOMO, some fear that, oh, I'm going to miss this deal and everyone else is in it. But yeah, I guess it feels a little slimy, but it's hard to get people to part with their cash. It's hard to get (laughs) that final, it all sounds great until you have to write the check. And it's okay. It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to give people some six figure amount, especially from like an individual investor who's, man, this could be X, Y, Z, or this could be going into something else. Is this the right choice? And cold feet are natural. And so I think part of the technique there is like making them feel comfortable that other people are the demand is there and that you may miss and so by the way like i think this is the same thing selling it's not necessarily a fundraising technique but it, it seems to apply it itself quite well to it yeah i guess the other kind of pro tip here is if you have a minimum everyone wants to do the minimum so the thing to do is always ask what's your average check size in a deal like this and then if you know you're then at least you get like maybe five times whatever your minimum is, because that's their average check size instead of everyone like putting in a little bit just to test the waters and get access to the next deal or whatever. Yeah. Very cool. I think it's just a, it's been an enjoyable 
thing to do. The thing that I, I wonder about is moving forward, assuming we assuming we go back to normal with COVID and start meeting people, I, I do see value. And, and this is something that our oral venture firm did is building up that audience and then starting to, I don't know, do some form of event planning. I know you're contact out in, in Minnesota had something similar, whether it's lunches or dinners or like a speaker series, something along those lines, building up because it's like, you're trying to build a community and it's just like any other community in my mind. It's yes, we have opportunities. And I, in Chicago, there were a lot of, of these groups, like, like I think of Hyde Park Angels and I'm not saying that, but I am saying something that feels somewhat exclusive, brings smart people together, brings goofy. Frankly, I think a, a good investor community is a bunch of like quirky people that are smart and have had some degree of success. And, and that alone can be fun just to get those people together. We used to do more of an, a small scale thing where we'd go skiing or something like that, but being able to spend one-on-one -on -one time is I think important for people to get comfortable with one another. At the end of the day, I think that's what it is, comfort. So I've been tagging along to these events. Like my friends have their venture funds and they throw their LP meetings and I'm like just trying to steal their LPs basically and hang out and drink beer with. So like you can do these events like pretty cheaply. You get a bunch of sponsors to provide the venue, the wine, the beer, the food, whatever. I, yeah, I think we should definitely do more of those in-person events at some point. And that's where you hit up like different cities. Like you throw a Chicago event, you throw a Minneapolis event and you try to get all the family offices to come. Yeah. I don't know. It's, I originally, when looking into, when we started this business, it was a lot of, like, Hey, let's self fund this stuff. Let's, we could raise money. And to me, I would tell you like my reaction to that at first was like, Oh, I don't want to have to deal with that. But it, it's actually been over the last two years or so. What have we been doing this almost two years? Yeah. That has actually turned into one of the more enjoyable parts of this job is like spreading out and building relationships with smart people that are, are like fun to check in with. Let's let them know what we're doing and they get excited about what we're doing. And it almost adds another layer of motivation to perform, but also to do good by people and make them happy. And it's like, it, I wasn't expecting it to, I thought it was only going to be like the upsides, the cash they give and the downside is the pressure to perform. And really it's been more of a positive motivator than a negative one. It's been like, I want to make these people proud. I like them. I, I want to make them money, I want you know us all to succeed together and feel like you have a team versus you, you hear the activist investors that are on public companies buying the recent, what was the recent tea that was spilled around the Peloton CEO? Was it Blackstone that released this deck? I don't know if it was Blackstone, it was some group that basically publicly released a reason why the CEO should be fired. This was like a month ago. I don't know if you saw that, but it was fucking hilarious. What was it about? It was why he was the like a terrible choice for CEO. And so they had, go check out the deck. But some of the, the best quotes were like interviews that he had done where he admitted that he's a terrible CEO when hmm. the company was doing really well. He's like, I'm an idiot. And then there was this other thing. I don't know if this one was in the deck, but he admitted, he had interviewed that he, every morning he drinks like 40 gulps of water first thing in the morning to the point where he almost vomits. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, he's a goofy guy. But then they went into, I think the, most devastating point that they put on the deck was like he admitted defeat by hiring McKinsey. And I was like, dang, shots fired. That's always the thing that I'm, I guess I had in my head or that I've observed about, and it hasn't ever been a firsthand experience around investors is I, I really see the upside in it now that we've you know built some of these relationships. Like, oh man, this is like positive motivation versus somebody who's going to come in and like stomp on your work and, and call you terrible and, and fire you. So 
I guess as long as you perform it, it shouldn't be a problem. <laughs> or don't try to yeah take interviews and admit being a terrible CEO. Yeah, I think the ideal is it's a two-way street, right? So they're interviewing you, but you're also interviewing them. And like the ideal is that you find someone you could work with and make money together for, I don't know, the next 30 years, the next 50 years, however long your career is. So it's cool. It's been really fun starting these relationships and hopefully they're long and enduring ones that are successful for everyone. Exactly. I think that's all I got to say about the last, I don't know, couple of years of investor conversations. But if you're out there thinking about doing something similar, or I know there are more folks that are, are dabbling in search and that's a whole community of its own. That's we've recently had some exposure to, but feel free to reach out to us and, and let us know what your experiences are. I'm curious to see like for other folks that are doing similar size deals, which I would say are small, you know, what th- there's always this fine line between I'm going to either self-fund it or family and friends, but um, interested to see how this space evolves that we're playing in specifically this kind of like lower end of the market. I wouldn't say lower end, but like smaller companies that are trying to strive to, to become bigger companies. Okay. Well, uh, take care. We'll talk to you guys later. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.